Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. DACA recipients suffer a defeat in federal court. We're being told again that our lives are still in limbo. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Christina Kim. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Outside legal help is proposed to draft the new police oversight ordinance. When I saw the proposed ordinance that the city attorney wrote, I was shocked because it was clearly written from the perspective of the police department. A solar farm in the small town of Hakumba is moving forward despite growing opposition and a preview of the second year of virtual Comic-Con. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. President Biden says his administration plans to appeal a federal judge's ruling that the DACA program is illegal. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program allows young people brought to this country as children to receive protection from deportation and permission to work and attend school in the U.S. A lawsuit brought by Texas and several other states argued that DACA was an overreach of executive authority by President Obama. The federal judge's ruling on Friday allows 600,000 present recipients to remain on DACA, but restricts new applicants and invalidates the program. Joining me is Dulce Garcia, the executive director of Border Angels and a recipient of DACA. And Dulce, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Maureen. What does Judge Andrew Hannon's ruling actually do to the DACA program? What this decision means to us, aside from the legal aspect, is that we're being told, again, that our lives are still in limbo. There's still litigation where the state of Texas and others want to see us deported. They don't want us in this country, and we're being told once more what we need is a path to citizenship. Otherwise, we're going to be here yet again in the future where we're fighting for our stay here in this country. What it means legally for a lot of people is they're going to have to wait to submit their applications and you're going to have to wait even longer. And what will not being able to apply and be accepted for DACA stop those young people from doing? I remember when I was in high school and I remember when I was undocumented, 
trying to figure out the rest of my life, trying to figure out where to go to school, trying to figure out whether I could apply for a job. Now here, fast forward many years later, these young kids are put in the same position where they remain undocumented and have to question what their future is going to be like. Now that the DACA program has been yet again attacked, the 60,000 plus applications that are now going to have to be set aside. We're talking about children that are trying to figure out the rest of their lives. And what did the judge say that DACA is illegal? What does it mean President Obama overreached his executive authority? From day one, the prior administration had attacked the DACA program and said that Obama should not have started the program in the first place, that it needed to have a process where public comment would be submitted. The president always had the authority to exercise discretion in cases such as ours and say, we're not going to put resources to deporting this population. And so the DACA program has always been lawful. What this judge is saying is that the way that the Obama administration went about creating the program was unlawful. During the last lawsuit uh, that we took to the Supreme Court, it became evident that the way that the rescission of the DACA program went about violated the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act. Now, with this lawsuit, they're saying the creation of the DACA program violated that same act. Uh, Of course, uh, for us that benefit from DACA, we continue to say that what we need is a path to citizenship. DACA was never the end all of it. We wanted a path to citizenship, and DACA was a way to keep us in the U.S. while we continue fighting for that path to citizenship. So, as you say, President Biden is basically saying this same thing that you just said about the fact that Congress should provide a path to citizenship while his administration plans on defending DACA, he says the larger issue is it a permanent solution for the young dreamers helped by DACA. But is there any legislation in the works that would make that possible? Well, there is a budget reconciliation process right now that is being discussed in D.C. We're urging and advocates are pushing for past to citizenship to be included in, in those negotiations Unfortunately, as DACA recipients, we have been politicized from day one, and we saw how we were being used as political bargaining chips. And we're in this position again, where we have to defend our livelihoods in this country and prove once more that we are good economically for this country, that we have so many contributions to this country, and we want to continue contributing to this country fully by being a part of the society as a U.S. citizen. You mentioned the U.S. economy and supporters of DACA are saying that this ruling couldn't have come at a worse time for the U.S. economy because new DACA recipients could fill jobs in the service industries that are hurting for workers right now. Do you see that as one of the results of this uh, legal opinion? Yes, we saw during the pandemic over 200,000 DACA recipients were on the front lines as essential workers. And more than that, 250,000 DACA recipients have already U.S. citizen children here in the U.S. And so we're talking about not just the, the potential removal of those of us that are undocumented in this country, but the removal of so many contributions in our communities. Do you believe the Biden administration will find a permanent solution for the DREAMers? The Biden administration has to find a permanent solution for DREAMers. It was something that the prior administrations had promised to us. We've been waiting for decades. This is long overdue, and the Biden administration has to do its best to negotiate something for us. 
And it was one of the promises that the current president made to us a long time ago. I understand that there's a long list of things that the administration is working on, but finding a permanent solution for DACA recipients should be at the top of the list because that was one of the promises made during the campaign. I've been speaking with Dulce Garcia, Executive Director of Border Angels and a DACA recipient. Dulce, thank you. Thank you again, Maureen. The San Diego City Attorney is proposing using outside legal counsel to help draft an updated ordinance that will create the city's Commission on Police Practices. The overwhelming passage of Measure B last November called for the creation of a commission that would be independent of the police department and oversee police practices. A draft ordinance to set up the commission was met with criticism from advocates and sent back to the drawing board earlier this month. For more on how community members are reacting to this news, we're joined by Andrea St. Julian, an attorney and founder of San Diegans for Justice. Welcome. Thank you. Andrea, I know you were instrumental in helping shape Measure B and the creation of the Commission on Police Practices, and you were not pleased with that initial draft. What do you think of the city's attorney's recommendation to seek outside counsel? I applaud the decision. It was definitely the right decision. And uh, we have to look at next steps in terms of who that outside counsel is going to be. Why do you think it's important for there to be outside counsel on this matter? Because there is, in fact, a conflict of interest uh, within the city attorney's office. The city attorney represents the police department. When I saw the proposed ordinance that the city attorney wrote, I was shocked because it was clearly written from the perspective of the police department. What made you feel like it was written in the perspective of the police department? It was written for the benefit of the police department, and it was written in a way that did not benefit the community. The proposed ordinance did not fulfill the duties and promise of Measure B, and that is why I say that the ordinance was clearly written from the perspective of the police department. And I know one of those things was that all of the commissioners would be appointed by the city council. And that's something that you've really thought should should not be the case. Is that right? Uh, That is true, but it is not simply me. We had forums over the past many months from community members. And actually, for years, we've had community forums to find out what best meets the community's needs. The one thing that the community was most adamant about is that the uh, new commissioners should not be appointed by the mayor or the city council's office. As you mentioned, really the next step, what you're looking for is what is this outside legal counsel going to look like? So city attorney Mara Elliott has outlined two options for seeking outside legal counsel. One is extending a contract with a law firm that already works with the city. And the second is having the Commission on Police Practices finally hire its own general counsel. What do you think is the right course of action here? Well, I think the first problem, if the city were to use the attorney for the commission, you would have a clear conflict of interest. I don't think it would be possible to use them. The attorney for the commission is hired to represent the commission's interests, and that could be at odds with what the city council is recommending for the new ordinance. And so that's a conflict. I don't think that that can even happen. I think there needs to be a considered search for outside counsel. 
And it needs to be outside counsel that has experience in not only writing legislation, but in civil rights and and, uh, public interest work. The city attorney is also recommending seeking outside counsel to legally review the PROTECT ordinance, which seeks to end pretextual stops and consent searches. It was drafted by the Coalition for Police Accountability and Transparency, of which San Diegans for Justice is part of. What do you make of this decision and, and this recommendation? I applaud that decision as well. I think that that is a really important decision. The uh, conflicts that exist between the the, the city attorney and, um, you know, writing this ordinance exists with respect to the CPP ordinance as well as to the protect ordinance. People have to understand and, and keep in mind the city attorney represents the police department. They cannot be independent and objective in writing any legislation having to do with the police department. And where does the PROTECT ordinance stand right now? I mean, what really needs to happen in order for this to even be a new law in the city? Well, it has to pass through city council. Uh, I think it's an extremely well-written ordinance, and I think that it is an extremely important and necessary ordinance. And uh, the only thing that has to happen is for the city council to say yes. And this legal review is part of that process, is that right? Of course, the city does want a legal review of the ordinance, and uh, that should take place and be part of the normal process. When we last spoke, it was actually in May for the anniversary of George Floyd's death. And at the time, you were disappointed at the speed in which this commission is being formally set up. But you were still hopeful. Is that still the case? Oh, I'm extremely hopeful. I'm actually more than hopeful. The community has shown up every step of the way. And if the community keeps showing up, we will get the ordinance that Measure B promised. As we continue to move forward as a city, talking about police reform and accountability, what do you want to see our leaders do in, in terms of keeping people engaged in the subject, but also trusting of this process? Actually, that's a pretty simple answer. Elected officials need to start listening to the community and their voters. Measure B was passed with 75% of the vote. That is incredible. And despite that overwhelming support, elected officials are still refusing to listen to what the voters want and to what the community wants. We have given elected officials everything that they need to write uh, an appropriate ordinance. We have had forums where it's very clear what the community wants. I took all of the information that we got from the the community and I wrote a voter's ordinance which has a tremendous amount of support. Even the new commission is very supportive of most parts of the voters ordinance. There really isn't much disagreement from the community side, yet the elected officials are not just simply taking what has been prepared and given to them and doing the right thing. They wanna make this really difficult. And that is not going to do anything more than make things difficult for them. I've been speaking with Andrea St. Julian, attorney and founder of San Diegans for Justice. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Christina Kim. Jade Heineman has the day off. The heat waves that have rippled across the western U.S. this summer are causing problems for wildlife researchers. In the desert outside San Diego, an annual bighorn sheep count is canceled. KPBS reporter Claire Tregesser says the decision was made after a volunteer died. It was supposed to be the 50th anniversary of a citizen scientist tradition. Every year, for three days in early July, volunteers hike into the desert, sit in the shade all day, and count sheep. Okay, I've got the mail. The mail's going down, 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 down to water right now. That's a video made at last year's count. Volunteers like Callie Mack say their efforts help keep tabs on the peninsular bighorn sheep, which are endangered. You hike up there and... You're all hot and sweaty and you're carrying some gear and you're saying to each other, oh, why do we do this every year? It's This is just miserable. Mac has been going to the count for 35 years and says it's worth it. But then all of a sudden you start seeing sheep coming down to, to get a drink or maybe coming into your count site and everything changes. You're just energized. It, it's like the sun coming up. But not this year. Right before the scheduled count, a volunteer was out in the 116-degree heat, stashing water for sheep counters to use. He died of heat stroke. The state parks department decided to cancel the count. Volunteers like Mac were not happy. Honestly, we felt like we'd been slapped hard in the face by state parks. They might have made some modifications. They could have gathered us all together beforehand and said, look, we don't want this to happen again. Be extra cautious. The California State Parks Department wouldn't do an interview about the decision. But here's part of a pre-recorded statement spokesman Jorge Moreno sent. While California State Parks appreciates the citizen science surveys, it should be noted that the data set is only one piece of the overall bighorn sheep recovery plan. He says the extreme heat makes the count just not worth it. And there are other ways to count sheep, including using helicopters, cameras, and GPS collars. But researchers at Oregon State University say a combination of all methods, including firsthand observation, is best. And I'm speaking quietly because we're watching a group of bighorn sheep that are eh, probably about four or 500 yards away. Professor Clinton Epps monitors bighorn sheep populations by checking for parasites in their droppings. Okay, we've been here about 20 minutes, and she, our collared view did just drop pellets, so we're going to go collect the samples and then move on and try to find a different group of sheep. He says an annual census done in the same way every year is also important. That's a long data set. 
And we don't have many long data sets in this business like that. And that data set helps researchers like him know whether conservation efforts are working. He says cameras and collars also help as long as you have someone to review all the footage. It's expensive and it's hard. And, you know, it's one thing to put out cameras. It's another to sit there and review hundreds, maybe thousands of hours worth of videos or, you know, thousands of gigabytes worth of photos. Epps says in-person counting can also spot issues like disease. But that won't be happening this year. The State Parks Department says they'll work on safety plans so the count may return in the future. If it doesn't, volunteer Kelly Mack says more will be lost than just a sheep census. It makes more ordinary citizens aware of why the bighorn needs protection. At last count, there were less than 800 peninsular bighorn sheep. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. Joining me is Mark Jorgensen, former superintendent of Anzaborego Desert State Park. And Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Now, we just heard that dangerous weather conditions forced the cancellation of this year's civilian volunteer count of bighorn sheep in Anzaborego. One volunteer actually tragically died from heat stroke. Do we know if animals are dying as well because of the heat? We do know that last September, four bighorn were found near one of our water rain collection devices that had gone dry. Is there any other source of water for these bighorn sheep? Uh, If these water collectors dry up, is there any way of getting them any water? That's what we're hoping to do uh, fairly soon, is to actually fly some water in on an emergency basis by helicopter to two of the so-called guzzlers. Each of them stores 5,000 gallons of water, and we feel that if we can get about 2,000 gallons into each of them, that That'll probably get the bighorn through the summer. There are about 150 sheep altogether in that mountain complex, and we probably have about 30 or 40 sheep that are in this uh, Whale Peak subpopulation, and they, they really have no alternate sources. So that is our top priority. We, we hope to put funding together and find a helicopter that is able to lift water in, much like a firefighting uh, helicopter would would do to deliver water to a fire. What about the vegetation that the sheep eat? Is that still available in this drought? The vegetation is plentiful, but as you can imagine with um, only two inches of rain last winter, there was not a lot of good green up in the springtime, which would normally um, you know, put a lot of good nutrition on and also hold some level of moisture for the bighorn. Once the air temperature reaches up in the upper 90s and goes over 100, the bighorn uh, will need free water of some sort during the, during the week. They can go several days without a drink of water. And during the winter, they can go six or seven months without a drink, uh, obtaining the moisture they need from the vegetation, as you pointed out. But during hot times and during droughts, that vegetation is not able to sustain them all on its own. So we, we do have to have natural water sources or, or human-made water. Now, other wildlife in the area must also be affected by this heat and the lack of water. What can you tell us about that? Well, many things like, like species of birds often migrate through and they're gone during the summer. 
a lot of desert animals avoid the heat by living underground or in caves during the day and being nocturnal. Um, animals like foxes, coyotes, jackrabbits, cottontails, uh, their numbers will fluctuate greatly during hard times. So we will see a decline in things like rabbits and coyotes and bobcats as the food sources uh, decline. So will those populations. They're tied very closely together. So large mammals like mule deer, bighorn sheep can move up and down in elevation and along mountain ranges, but can in this kind of country, they're, they're unable to migrate long distances like they might up in the Rocky Mountains. Mountain lions, we know from having radio telemetry and satellite collars on them, many of the mountain lions actually move from the desert back into the Cuyamacas and Palomar Mountain area for the summer, and then they'll come back down into the desert during the winter. Besides the numbers of bighorn sheep, what kind of information will be lost because the count won't be taking place this year? Well, in the big picture, when we lose one or two years of data, it's, uh, it's not a devastating loss. Since we have 49 years of consistent data, we're able to analyze that. Uh, so one or two years taken out of the you know, context of the entire count is not uh, a drastic loss. But what it does is uh, we have a group of people who are so dedicated. Many of them have volunteered for this citizen science census 30 to 40 years. And so you, you know, I think we all lost a, a lot in, in our normal lives due to COVID. And this being the 50th anniversary of the Bighorn Sheep Count, there were a lot of people really looking forward to this and to celebrating the 50th anniversary and making it a special event. Uh, I think our fear is that working within the state framework of bureaucracy, uh, we have suspicions that maybe the state of California and Anza Borrego Desert State Park will not be willing to accept the, the liability of putting 60 or 80 volunteers out in the desert on the 4th of July weekend in the future. They have made a statement that they, they plan on making it better and safer, and they don't plan on canceling it in the future, and I hope that is the case. I've been speaking with Mark Jorgensen, former superintendent of Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Mark, thank you very much for your information. Thank you for your interest in bighorn sheep. appreciate it. Staying with the topic of drought, the Colorado River supplies drinking water for some of the West's biggest cities. But a lot of them, like San Diego County, lie outside the watershed. Canals, tunnels, and pipelines from the river keep water flowing to their taps, but the infrastructure also puts pressure on the fragile river, especially in dry times. From Aspen Public Radio in Colorado, Alex Hager explains. High up on Independence Pass, on the Continental Divide at more than 10,000 feet, the winding road passes by a critical piece of water infrastructure hidden off among the trees. As we look upstream, we see the headwaters of the Roaring Fork River coming in. Christina Medved is with the Roaring Fork Conservancy. And to our left right here, this is the water from the Lost Man Canal coming in here. 
About 80% of Colorado's water falls on the western side of the state, where snowmelt in the mountains trickles down into rivers. But about 80% of Colorado's people live east of the mountains. And thanks to gravity, that water doesn't flow to them naturally. So for the last 150 years, engineers have created a massive plumbing system to fix that. And up at this dam, it's really easy to see and hear how the water gets split up. Medved and I hike upstream from the dam, right alongside a rushing river of mountain snowmelt. So the sound that we hear right now is of the undammed portion of the Roaring Fork River. Just a short stroll downhill, it's a little more tranquil, where the dam has reduced the flow to a much narrower, calmer stream. And now, we're on the other side of the Roaring Fork Diversion Dam. So the sound that you're hearing here is what's passing through, making its way down to Aspen and the rest of the Roaring Fork Valley. The water that gets pulled away into the tunnel flows into a reservoir, then into another reservoir, then into the Arkansas River, and finally onto the Front Range. It's called a trans-mountain diversion. These systems provide drinking water for some of the Front Range's biggest cities. Same is true for canals and tunnels that keep Salt Lake City, Albuquerque, and Los Angeles well-watered. But these systems aren't without critics. When you first learn about it, the, the concept of a trans-mountain diversion is crazy. It's, it's, it seems wrong, it, it seems um, antithetical to the health of the river, and, and I have to say, all of that's true. That's Andy Mueller, the general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservation District. His group was set up in the 1930s to oppose these diversions and make sure that there's enough water for the people on the western side of the state. The idea that, that a large population center hundreds of miles away can pull water out of a stream and, and bring it to their uh, their city for their use is, is hard to accept under our, our current um, ecological and environmental values that our society holds. Mueller says the issue is those current values aren't written into law. And the way the rules are now, if you want to put a river's water to use hundreds of miles away from its source, you have every right to do so. It might just require a plumbing system to get it there. But right now, there's just less water to go around, period. The Front Range is currently drought-free, but those places in the mountains that provide a dependable source of water for everyone in the state, they are deep into a drought that's left snowpack and river flows way lower than they should be. I think that we need to work on um, making sure that the water balance occurs, um, that, that in a time like this where we have an imbalance, that, that those uh, Front range diverters really do a good job of coming back and making sure that we um, that they reduce their uses when their damage is so significant. But on the front range, those diverters say they're getting better at listening to the folks on the other side when they put up a distress signal. Nathan Elder is the water supply manager for Denver Water. He says over the last two decades, their per capita water use is down by more than 20 percent. Everyone in Colorado, you know, needs to decrease their use. And, and we have seen that and we have been successful with our conservation efforts and, and customer messaging and watering rules. The fact of the matter, he says, Colorado is in too deep. The plumbing is there. The demands are still high. And until foundational laws on Western water management change, this is what we have. It, it has to work together with, you know, water from the West Slope uh, moving o- over to the East Slope. Because, he says, you can't just pick up whole cities and move them to where the water is. I'm Alex Hager in Aspen, Colorado.
despite overwhelming community opposition, a 600-plus acre solar farm in the small town of Hakumba is moving forward. The solar project would be the largest in San Diego County. After months of back and forth, residents' calls to decrease the size of the solar farm have largely gone unheeded. Joining me now to talk about the project is iNewsource reporter Camille Von Canel. Thanks for joining the program, Camille. Thanks. Okay, so in case some of our listeners don't know of Hakumba, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So Hakumba is a small town at the southeastern corner of the county, right next to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, it has around 500 people now. It had 10 times that in its heyday a century ago as a tourism destination for its hot springs. And it's just a, a beautiful area with beautiful mountains and desert. So earlier this month, the San Diego County Planning Commission voted 5-2 to two to recommend the County Board of Supervisors approve the solar farm project. How did the project that they recommend compare to what the developers were proposing? Sure. So one of the main things to understand that's changed since the developers first proposed this project is that they've signed a contract to provide the power to the San Diego Community Power, which is a group that serves uh, the coast, the cities along the coast with power. So that, that power that's going to be produced at the solar project has a destination. Now, the original proposal that the developers had in mind covered 643 acres in Hukumba. They voluntarily reduced it around 20 or so acres before bringing it to the Planning Commission. And the county staff recommended a further reduction in size to around 604 acres. Um, the main difference there is that there would be a, a increased buffer between the homes and the community park and the solar panels themselves. So previously it was 30 feet, and the proposal that the San Diego County Planning Commission recommended for approval would have that buffer at 300 feet. But the output remains the same uh, in terms of the amount of electricity generated. Got it. And that's still not what community members were really asking for, right? What, what have they been advocating for? Yeah, so it seems like most of the community has coalesced behind this alternate vision that would cut the project in half in size, so down to around 300 acres. And that would leave space for the community to grow either in residential or commercial development sort of next to the town. And they also want a wildlife and hiking corridor and backup power for the community because they do experience shutoffs from uh, a San Diego gas and electric during periods of high wind and fire risk. But the developer has said no to those things. So most residents say that the project recommended by the Planning Commission doesn't provide the community with power or any other benefits and actually only detracts from it, like as you're saying. The commission told the developers to work with the community on this. Is that a common approach? Yeah, so these community benefits agreements are pretty common for developers, whether it's developers of renewable energy or housing or stadiums. We see it a lot with big projects like that. Sometimes the agreements are championed by the community and sometimes they're not. Um, an example of one of these benefits packages in the backcountry is that Iberdrola Renewables committed more than $2.1 million to the community when it developed Thule Wind, which is uh, 57 wind turbines that you can see from I-8. And so that money went to health programs, cultural preservation programs. Um, so that's an example of something that, that, that has taken place before. What community benefits have been agreed upon thus far? Yeah, so there's been two deals that have been signed between the developer of this 
solar project in Hakumba and local community organizations. One of them is a $250,000 deal with the Hakumba Community Services District, which is the water utility in town, and it also owns the community park. So that money would go to improve that community park. The other deal that's been signed is with the Imperial Valley Desert Museum in Ocotillo, um, and that is worth $75,000 and it will go to a special exhibit um, and also just general support. But there's a little bit of a catch to those benefits, right? Right. So I read through the copy of the agreement with the Hukumba Community Services District, and it includes a clause that requires the utility to support the project, to not challenge it, including in the form of a lawsuit, and to, to pen a letter of support if the developer ask, asks for that. And the deal with the museum um, also requires support, although I haven't seen that specific language. Got it. And how is the community reacting to these proposals for community benefits? Yeah, so most of the most vocal critics are, are panning the donations so far as just not good deals. So here, for example, is Jeffrey Osborne, and he owns the historic hotel and spa in town. A few hundred thousand dollars can't replace the future and hope of our our community and the devastating effect this is going to have on everybody here for generations to come. Hmm. So what's next for this project, Camille? Yeah, so the next immediate step is that it is scheduled to go before the Board of Supervisors on August 18th, and they will vote whether to approve the project or not. And then we'll see, there's been a lot of money spent on lawyers and consultants on both sides so far, and we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. A lot to keep following as this project moves forward. I've been talking with iNews source reporter Camille Von Canel. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Christina Kim with Maureen Cavanaugh in for Jade Hydeman today. Comic-Con International, the massive summertime celebration of pop culture, has once again been forced to substitute an online version of the show for an in-person one. The event begins this Friday and runs through Sunday. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with spokesperson David Glanzer about what people can expect from the virtual Comic-Con. David, Comic-Con is doing their second virtual edition. So how does it feel going into it this time? Do you feel like you've learned anything or applied any new ideas to the online experience? Well, I think it's uh, a lot less stressful, which should not be confused with not stressful. But no, we have. We learned a lot, I think, in our last iteration. It's interesting because when we first started last year, I think we were probably, in terms of uh, fan-related events, were probably one of the first that really 
mounted something like this. And uh, now that the pandemic seems to be lessening, you know, we may very well be one of the, the last. So we kind of bookend it. So we're excited. We think we have some uh, cool stuff coming up and um, fingers crossed that people have a good time. And how are people going to be able to access it this year? Is it also going to be free like it was last year? It'll be free. One of the things that uh, we have done is a lot of the sponsorship involved. So that has really defrayed the costs, of the hard dollar costs of what we've had to do. So it'll, it'll be free again. They can go to our website and there are portals there to take them to whichever uh, part of the uh, event they want to attend. And is it going to be like last year in the sense that panels would start at a specific time but then become available afterwards for you to like check back in with later yeah that that is the plan right now one of the great things about being um, virtual was uh, and we mentioned this last year you know during a real show i don't mean real show but real in-person show uh, you have to decide sometimes you know what do i want to see the great thing about being virtual is that you just have to decide what you want to see first so the, the plan is, again, to uh, have times when the panels drop, but those panels should remain online for, you know, a period of time. For the first time in my life, I went to 70 hours of panels with the virtual Comic-Con, and it was, it was wonderful, actually, I have to say. I have to agree. You know, we get a lot of contact from people, you know, globally who've never been able to attend Comic-Con who are very grateful to be able to see uh, what some of the excitement is about. And I, for one, was able to actually attend the Eisner Awards, which falls under my department, but I usually have to be in bed by the time the awards ceremony gets underway because I have to be up so early the next day. And it was wonderful to be able to watch the ceremony. To remind people, the Eisners are considered the Oscars of the comic industry, and they will again be online this year. And explain to people what these are. So this is a, uh, an acknowledgement and recognition of people who work in the comics and related comic book industry. So people who do graphic novels, I think there's uh, the web comics, things of that nature. You know, it's interesting because the in-person shows sometimes can, can run long. It's a, it's a great time for uh, people within the industry, their peers, to uh, acknowledge their contributions and their work. You know, some people have said, oh, you should really, you know, eliminate some categories or reduce the time frame so it's, 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 uh, it, it doesn't take as long. And the reality of the situation is it's, I think it's completely appropriate to acknowledge those people who oftentimes people don't know who they are. And this is their one time really in terms of, you know, uh, peer acknowledgement that they get to bask in the, in the, in the glow of, of that. And so I think it, it is as long as it needs to be. It's, it's an amazing event. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out once we get back to in-person shows, how I can maneuver actually attending the Eisner and Eisner's will still be able to get up you know, the next morning at three o'clock. And one of the great things about the Eisner Awards is it really gives you a great reading list. I mean, once it's over, you can just compile a list of all the nominees and, and go out and seek these from your comic book stores. This is a great way if you're new to the, the medium, if you want some pointers, it's a great way to start. Uh, I, I hear stories of people who ended up, you know, reading a comic because it was an Eisner nominated comic or won an Eisner. And then they discovered that, you know, that artist or that writer, they liked their work. So they looked at additional stuff that, that may have been produced by those people. So it can be a really great gateway to uh, understanding and really appreciating a really, really very cool art form. 
Now you mentioned artists. So in this virtual edition, is there also going to be a virtual version of the dealer's room and exhibit hall like there has there been? There is. So uh, one of the things that we'll have again this year is um, our exhibit hall again, which is great because you'll be able to you know, shop and, and uh, contribute to helping those people who've really been affected by COVID. I mean, we all have, uh, but this is a way to you know, help us uh, support them a bit. We're using a bunch of different platforms. I think last year we used a Tumblr, YouTube, I think Discord, Scener, but it's an opportunity for people to take part in various aspects of Comic-Con and on various platforms. Now, as much fun as I had doing the virtual panels, I of course missed the in-person event and Comic-Con will be doing something in person in November. So what can people expect or what do you know about what's going to happen in November at this point in time? Now that again, the, the, the pandemic has seemed to, you know, be slowing down a bit and, and a lot of the restrictions are lifted, we're, we're going to have an event in November. It'll be over Thanksgiving weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. We like to say, you know, spend Thursday with your family and then spend uh, the rest of the weekend with, with your fan family. Uh, it'll be a much smaller event. It's more of an intimate event. I don't want people to confuse um, the special edition, we're calling it, Comic-Con Special Edition, with the July show. But it'll be an opportunity for us to kind of dip our toes back into the community interaction. I, there are so many friends that I miss seeing in person. Uh, we'll have the opportunity to do that. There'll be panels and exhibit floor. Some of the things that uh, you know our conventions are known for. Um, I expect that uh, it'll be similar to our WonderCon show that we do in Anaheim. So it'll be a smaller show, a more intimate show, but uh, it, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And at this point, do you know if you'll be using the whole convention center and satellite hotels as well, or is it still in We're the... We're still doing a lot of planning on that. We will be at the convention center, I think, you know, depending upon um, any number of factors, we'll, we'll be we'll be determining what it is and how much space we use. You know, when we first uh, discussed this, we didn't know if there would be uh, space restrictions, if there would be social distancing, all of those things. So it's, it continues to be kind of a fluid situation, so we don't have specifics. We do know we'll be at the convention center. We do know that we'll have programming and exhibit floor space. Uh, we, you know, will be utilizing some of the hotels, at least certainly uh, for room blocks and whatnot whether there will be outside meetings and stuff offsite, we really don't know yet. I, I anticipate that we probably won't. I think most of it will be probably contained within the walls of the convention center, but it's early enough that things can change and, and it could expand. Uh, I think the, uh, what we've learned over the course of, of this whole situation is, you know, be flexible and uh, that's what we're trying to do. All right, well, I wanna thank you very much for talking about virtual and in-person Comic-Con. Always my pleasure, Beth. That was Beth Accomando speaking with David Glanzer. Comic-Con returns this Friday through Sunday with a completely virtual show. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, 
we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.